This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm here today at Ramp Up. Um, I'm joined by Kimberly Bloomston, the Chief Product Officer of LiveRamp, and Matt Kilmartin, the SVP of Habu and Partnerships, formerly the CEO of Habu. Kimberly, welcome to uh, the Architecture Podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And Matt, uh, I interviewed you about two years ago when you were independent. Now you're part of a really big company. We're going to find out more about that. Yeah, excited to answer any questions and share some perspective. All right. So quick housekeeping. So this week's vendor interview is with Ad Fontes Media. So I talked to Lou Pascalis and he gave us a great overview of how they're trying to protect the news business. So I'd recommend that. And the newsletter this week was with Walmart Vizio and my, t- my overview of that deal. I'd recommend, uh, subscribing at news.marchitecture.tv. All right. Ramp Up is uh, one of the best conferences in ad tech, even though it's a vendor conference, has really great content. It's also great because it's West Coast. You see different people. But I was a little surprised to see a uh, big sign outside this very room that said Ramp Up After Dark. Kimberly, any thoughts on Ramp Up After Dark? I don't know what it is. I'm <laughs> Trick question. <laughs> We're off to a great start. Um, now, let's get to serious topics. Um, so um, what are you announcing this week at Ramp Up? Yeah, we have several big announcements this week. One of the largest is around the launch of our new data collaboration platform. Uh, we've been talking about moving to a platform for many years at LiveRamp, and we're launching that this week. It's a interoperable, uh, composable platform to really change the live ramp landscape and speak more to the modern data architecture, uh, architecture and how we can support that. And to that end, we have another announcement, which is um, being embedded in the Databricks marketplace with our identity capabilities so that customers don't have to move their data around and instead can resolve their PII data directly to Ramp ID out of Databricks. Uh, so let's just go a little level deeper uh, so I understand what that means. What does a composed, composable uh, data stack or however you're putting it mean to your customers? Yeah, for our customers, it means um, if you want to come into our platform within our UI, great, we can support that. And we have all of our products available within that one single sign-on so you don't have to explore multiple different applications and sign-ons. But in addition to that, we have many customers that may want to leverage those same capabilities directly from, let's say, a cloud. And they're able to do that. And then we have other customers that just want to actually build on top of their own enterprise stack. And for that, we're enabling them to do so with APIs. And is that really the nature of the Databricks relationships where a customer who's using Databricks as a data store, as a CDP, can now append your ID in various ways? 
Absolutely. It's also um, true in, let's say, Snowflake Flake as an example. So there, it's not just identity is embedded, but we've also embedded activation there. So customers don't have to ship their data over to LiveRamp. They can do segmentation with a robust segmentation tool directly on their cloud data warehouse. And then when they hit activation, they're sending just a list of ramp IDs over instead of having this like large egress spend of their data or having to ship around PII. Yeah, the egress spend is something people often forget about because the actual cost of bandwidth is quite expensive when you're using a cloud provider. They make it very cheap to move data between the parts of the cloud. But as soon as you leave the cloud, the the bills really go up. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a reason for that. They want to keep the data there. But activation is really sending the data. I mean, that's how you're reaching users in another channel. And honestly, that's one of the dirty little secrets right now about cloud cleanrooms is the starting costs are very low. And for some of the more basic workloads people are doing, the cloud computing costs are are low. Um, But the reality is, as you scale data collaboration, the cloud costs will spiral. And so we've seen that with some of our customers and we've heard that feedback. And so having more of a product around your clean room and being able to control access, provision access, templatize outcomes is a lot better than giving people unfettered access to run queries because then you can't control your compute bill. So it's I buyer beware for people who think that a cloud clean room or a data warehouse clean room is the answer. Right, right. Because most clean rooms, they're going to charge you on a compute basis if you're doing complex queries or joins to the data in addition to the egress. Is that right? hundred percent. And let's realize how do clouds make money? They want the service to spend more and more and more and more. It's all about the compute. And so um, listen, I give the clouds a ton of credit. They're very important partners for us. Snowflake was an investor in Habu as well. But at the end of the day, really what all these clouds have done is they've provisioned the ability to share data, which is a critical component. And that's what's led us to do the composable solution. Um, but we all know the world of multi-cloud and you have to work across all the cloud clean rooms. And so it's a, it's a, it's not just a, a cost benefit play. It's also viability of your solution. Uh, let me just ask one more example to just I, – I always want to make sure I really understand it. All right. So I have my CDP data in, let's say, Snowflake uh, or or Databricks, and it ha- it's now joined with the LiveRamp ID, and I want to now activate it in a platform like the Trade Desk or Beeswax or anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that – is that how does the data get to that platform, and how is that different from how it works currently? Yeah. So I'll start with how it works currently. So how it works currently is you would ship your entire CDP database or your CRM database into LiveRamp. So we ingest that data within our kind of managed solution on behalf of the customer and throw away the PII, resolve it to to Ramp ID in a privacy safe way. And then you would segment the data to build the audiences that you want for your campaign. And then you would choose the destination that you want to send it to. And then we would ship that list of ramp IDs over to Trade Desk in this example. Um, now, instead of having to ship all this data around, instead within the Databricks platform or in the Snowflake platform, you can use our same exact segmentation UI and tool directly on that data, no matter where it sits. So if it's sitting, for instance, within Snowflake, that same marketer can build their segments right there within Snowflake. They use our UI for that. 
And then it takes the list of ramp IDs and then ships that over directly to Trade Desk. I appreciate that uh, comprehensive explanation. I tend to be a little slow on the uptake about some of this stuff. Um, let's talk about Habu. So that was the probably the most exciting ad tech deal of uh, last year. It's now part of Live Around, but closed, I guess, sometime in January. Um, so Matt, first, like, how's it feel? Uh, it feels great. I mean, obviously um, – when you start a company, you, you know, the odds are against you to fail. And, you know, I took a pretty big risk leaving Salesforce where I had a, a role working on consumer data across all the clouds. My, um, kids told me I was an idiot for leaving Salesforce because they really liked it. Um, Salesforce knows how to really entertain the whole family. And <laughs> are, are you at the dinner table like kids update your pipelines? Uh, so listen, I try to get my kids involved in, in business. And so when we closed Pepsi, I showed up at the table with, Four sixteen ounce Pepsis. My wife's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Pepsi signed today," and so, so yeah, I tried. I mean, but Mark Benioff's hard to compete against because it's it's Salesforce. What they do is they fly the whole family to Florida and they have buffets of chicken fingers up to your knees and tattoo parlors. So the best vacation my kids ever had, I was in a hotel room, <laughs> so it sucked. So I'm, I'm I'm on a mission to to have show a better vacation for my kids so they don't. Think it's Salesforce. I need I need my kids to f- figure out what I do for a living at this point. Um, <laughs> okay, it feels great. I, <laughs> I guess I guess just to start with, why Habu instead of the homegrown efforts that were previously known as Safe Haven? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we've spent quite a bit of time working together with Matt and Matt's team over at Habu, looking at this opportunity and how we would be better together. And one of the things that was very clear to us from our customers is that the space of clean room can be very confusing. You know, as Matt said, you can't have all these different cloud clean rooms that you're trying to interface with in a seamless way. And while Safe Haven was a great starting point for data collaboration and clean room capabilities, for that example, it was for these enterprises that didn't already have a cloud data warehouse that they were working towards within their business. And the marketing team really wanted to manage that data in a single audience tool that's connected directly to their activation pipes, their identity capabilities, so on and so forth. So Safe Haven was a great collaboration platform for those that wanted to bring their data in. But what we were seeing happening all around us was the shift to the cloud and as we were rolling out Data Hub, our our federated clean room, um, we were we were running into Habu quite a bit, and that was because many customers were seeing that they were already connected where their data lived within Snowflake, right? Or they were already connected within the AWS clean room, and so really the why Habu here is that they had that interoperability, kind of foundationally to how they built the product together with much seamless, uh, more uh, experience, which is a big goal for us across the product team right now, is simplifying things. Um, and on top of that, they took a really smart bet on AI from the beginning. Uh, and so, Matt, you're in the front lines now talking to LiveRAM customers, getting them to adopt Habu and, and use the product. You know, what, what are you seeing? What's uh, the same or different? What are the use cases that are really getting people excited? Yeah, Um so I'd say first and foremost, the use cases are the same. It's data-driven advertising. And and really, the reason why I think clouds are paying attention to clean rooms 
is because the whole Loomscape used to run on AWS and Snowflake wants to run on Snowflake and other clouds don't want that to happen. And so at LiveRamp, we're focused on outcomes for, for marketers and it had been going on for a while because quite frankly, we needed to license Ramp ID. And as we were kicking around, is it possible last March when the conversations really started because we were talking about a partnership and obviously it's a little weird because they had a competitive product too. But um, net net, the partnership conversations evolved into this, and and really what I'm seeing is incredible receptivity in the market. Like literally, 100% of our customers all signed their contracts over. 100% of our employees all accepted their offer letters. We've developed 30 million of pipeline in six weeks. And so the thing I would say, I mean, at Akamai, I bought companies. When my last company, Crux, was bought by Salesforce. A good integration plan makes the difference. We have a great integration plan. Right. And in terms of the use cases, when I think last time you and I spoke, there, there was always this question about how well activation worked with clean rooms because of scale. Um, I'm going to just assume that because you have the live ramp spine, activation is much better. Yeah. I just gave you a virtual check mark. You didn't see it. I mean, honestly, we could have gone to series C, but if you think about this and, and we had offers from, well, we had offers from other companies to be acquired. We also had term sheets for series C. We chose LiveRamp because they have a thousand customers already on their platform. Do you know how much money it would cost a startup to go do that? And so, yes, activation is solved. So is cross-walled garden measurement. Um, and so is um, uh, trusted execution environments. We're the only clean room out there that actually, I mean, we built it for with LinkedIn and, and Microsoft Advertising, where we are running confidential computing um, for those companies. No one else is doing that. Right. So who are the other term sheets from? I'm just kidding. I was waiting to see the PR person's eyebrows raise. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so in this year of cookie deprecation, I want to talk about some of the privacy and, uh, enhancing technologies, the PETs that are out there. Um, I understand that LiveRamp's working with Google around pair, but I'd also like to understand what LiveRamp's sort of official position is on the privacy sandbox. Yeah. I'll start with privacy sandbox, which is. Um, we think it's incredibly complementary to our authenticated traffic solution, and we we think it's a really cool uh, approach. Uh, we're really laser focused on authenticated traffic, so like knowing exactly who you're targeting and for what purpose, because marketers need personalization more than ever before. I mean, consumers are changing, and where they're spending their time is changing, so reaching them in a really personalized way is key. Now, on Pair, I'm super excited. Uh, LiveRamp and Habu were both chosen to be clean room partners um, for Google. And, you know, Pair is a, is a massive opportunity uh, for customers to still be able to activate to DV360. A hundred percent of our marketers are activating to DV360. And this is how we can get them moving forward. With can you give me Pair for my grandma? Can you just explain <laughs> it? One sentence. What is Pair? Uh, Pair enables publishers and marketers to collaborate and create a unique identifier to join together so that they can send that data over to DV360. So it's the way DV360 can use deterministic data but not uh, get caught up in Google's privacy shield. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially a way for each of the publishers to have their authenticated data um, be able to be uh, leveraged by by the marketer for their media spend. And to add, the pair announcement is massive 
because for the first time, I mean, Google doesn't need to partner with anyone on this. And, and they are, are partnering with Habu, LiveRamp, and another vendor. I forget the other one. Um, so anyways, it's, um, I, I think it's pretty consequential. And honestly, we have an amazing partnership with Google. And it's just another area of where we partner. Yeah, I mean, Pear is interesting. I think my take on it uh, just editorializes that um, Google always has this problem where they want to set standards for their network, but then they also have SaaS-like products and they have to do what the customers want. And Pear is their way of doing what the customers want. Yeah, but I would also say Google BigQuery has been one of our absolute best partners from a product perspective. And maybe it's because they're third from a market share perspective and they need to partner more. But they've been a phenomenal partner on many different fronts. All right. The last topic I want to cover is ramp ID, deterministic IDs. You mentioned this. Um, so what, what's, I guess, let's start. What's the latest on ramp ID penetration and how you are preparing for the cookie deprecation? Yeah. So, um, let's start with what ramp ID is because I think that there's a lot of confusion around that. Um, and it plays a pretty significant role in how we think about interoperability and what Habu is doing with the, with the clean room and how that's better together. So ramp ID kind of has two sides of it. The first is enabling a customer to take any identifier type that they have and they have many. They may have some cookies. They may have some device IDs. They could have some hashed emails. They might have a bunch of other data sets as well to bring that into and resolve to a single ID so that they have a unified view across the enterprise, which is messy within the enterprise around who their consumers are. And then it enables them to target. And so I think what you're referring to is on the back end of that, being able to send that out and be able to bid on that and, and get. Yeah, I guess I was being pretty imprecise. I, 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 what I'm interested in is the current status of publisher adoption. Yeah. So as of today, we have 18,000 publisher domains that have adopted the LiveRamp authenticated traffic solution, which is ATS. And we have 895 direct subscription customers um, as of the end of Q4 of our fiscal year. Uh, what's that second stat mean? That's the number of customers that are leveraging it within LiveRamp. Um, and as you look forward, is there um, – are you going to be releasing case studies or results of using this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, across ATS but also across Pair, we just released a case study for Pair for Omni, which we're really excited about. And we'll be sharing more details throughout, of course, RampUp. I mean, I think the only thing I would add on that as well is I think a lot of people say death of the cookie. This is so bad. We can't resolve to one ID. I actually think it's better. And yeah, when I worked at a DMP, I didn't think so because all the log level data, you know, got shut off from MTA and, and DMP. But the reality is, is brands are getting much access to clearer, richer data signal today. And customers like a Pepsi who've been with us for three years are working across 15 different cleaners. And there are other vendors in the marketplace who like to pretend that the U.S. is behind because they haven't gotten traction. But the reality is, is plenty of brands are doing incredible things in the U.S. who have been at it for three years. And so I think the market speaks for itself. When IDC sort of assessed the market, there was two leaders. It was Habu and LiveRamp. And now we're together and super synergistic. And I think, you know, we can deliver a lot more value for customers. All right, great. Let's call it on that. Uh, Kimberly, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Matt, congratulations, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. 
We'll be back in one minute with the news. And we're back. I'm joined by Eric Franchi to talk about the news of the week. Eric, thanks for letting me do the first half on my own on the road. No problem. Um, and I'm keeping everything uh, stable here in the, the Northeast and dirty Jersey. So uh, let's get right into the news of the week. So first order of business is you are at ramp up. Give us the ramp up vibe check for all of us that are not there. Absolutely. Uh, ramp up is a really good conference. Whether it's a vendor conference or not, it's extremely well produced, has great content, great networking, certainly the best vendor conference out there. Um, and just as an editorial note, I'll just point out we're not being compensated for this at all. Those just I like the conference I wanted to go. There's no talk of sandbox whatsoever. Sandbox is a verboten topic. Uh, and in the interview that just played, uh, you heard that they didn't really want to talk about it. And there's a lot of talk about deterministic IDs. There's a lot of talk about Habu and clean rooms. I think they are leaning in very heavily into that. They demoed a product called their collaboration suite where you could basically take a live ramp audience and immediately push it to Habu or push it to Amazon or Databricks or really any other clean room that's not named InfoSum. So a little bit of shots fired there. and There was a little uh, fun on Twitter. I'll be covering this in my newsletter on Monday. It should be fun. So collaboration is the is the word of the week. There was a drinking game, eh? <laughs> yeah, I, I suggested a drinking game, and it would have been fatal by the end of by the end of the keynote. Uh, Scott Howe would have murdered us all in the drinking game from the number of times he said collaborate, collaboration, the collaboration suite, all that sort of stuff, which is their kind of bread and butter. So yeah, that's really where they're positioning themselves as the deterministic future. No probabilistic, no sandbox, no funny business. Just you get people's hashed emails and you use them all day. That's that's their point of view. And I think, and I'll talk about this in the newsletter as well, it's a little bit of a horse race between them and Trade Desk. I, I didn't feel a lot of love for Trade Desk. Didn't hear the words Trade Desk on stage even once. Heard a lot about Google. Heard a lot about Pair, which is Google's deterministic solution. Nothing much about Trade Desk, even though Trade Desk is probably one of their largest partners. Why would that be? Well, because the Trade Desk, essentially is trying to disintermediate LiveRamp with UID2. If a marketer or an agency were to adopt UID2 for a full-stack solution, they would need LiveRamp. So in LiveRamp's worldview, they don't care if someone's using the Trade Desk as a DSP, but they want to use it with a ramp ID as the lingua franca of deterministic. And so they're sort of frenemies at this point, as far as I could tell. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Um, it's going to be a be a fun one to watch uh, for 2024. Absolutely. Um, so let's uh, let's get right into the news of the week. So we had some uh, some earnings um, continuing to trickle out, and this was um, this was a head scratcher. So Pubmatic and IAS uh, both reported this week. Pubmatic reported first solid year, 14 percent year over year growth. Display was up. SPO is dominating their business. It's 45 percent of revenue. PMP deals up. 50% and the stock just ripped. It was up like 30% overnight, maybe even more the next morning. So, and and I think uh, uh, Rajiv had some like pretty positive things to say about Q1 and, and, and 2024. The next day, IAS reported, I think they reported 14% uh, year over year growth. They had, um, I think, less positive things to say about um, Q1 and 2024, basically like, you know, below analyst estimates. And the stock, absolutely crashed. It was down 40%. So this is, uh, it's weird. Like basically same performance um, by, you know, two different companies doing two different things, you know, different outlooks and the stocks were, uh, couldn't be different. Yeah. Uh, I think the big difference is that IS had a 200 PE 
multiple. So both IS and DV are really rich stocks. They're both exciting companies. They're growing well. They're well-managed, but huge expectations. And so it's hard to justify a PE ratio of 200 when you're growing 14% a year. Yeah, this is true. The one thing about IS that I noted that you know maybe an interesting positive catalyst for the future is uh, social is a big part of their biz. Social was 49% of revenue. You know, social continues to be you know, big this year in terms of like, you know, election spending, if X, you know, really doubles down on its ad business, that could be a positive catalyst for IS. And, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll have one. Yeah. When Lisa was on the show, Lisa Schneider, it was like, I guess, November, December, and they had just started the X integration and probably wasn't contributing to revenue yet. Uh, and they have an exclusive there on pre-bid uh, safety. So that could turn into some significant revenue, potentially. I don't have any specific guidance, but it seems like an interesting opportunity. Yeah, yeah. That's it on earnings. And then you put in the in the notes uh you wanted to talk about uh collective audience just to put a cap on the public company stuff. So what you yeah what you got? So okay. So this is uh raise my eyebrow. There's this new public company called Collective Audience. And this has nothing to do with Joe Apprendi's old collective. It's just they use the name again. And it's rare that a new public ad tech company just shows up and no one's heard of it. And some people pinged me on Twitter, like, what what is this company? And then I saw that Joe Zawoski, your partner, is on the board of directors of it. So that's a kind of an endorsement. So I looked into this company. It's a SPAC. So it de-SPAC'd. It is the, the main brand that they do business under before the, the SPAC was called Logic with a Q, L-O-G-I-Q. Pretty small lead gen company. Basically, they do lead gen. They do a lot of weird little marketing activities. And, you know, it's a public company and they're making some no- noise there. So I reached out to their CEO, Peter Boyd. And I talked to him to find out, you know, what his deal is. And it's interesting because as anyone who's a regular podcast listener knows, I've had a massive hard-on for this other company called Kubian, uh, which was kind of a crappy public ad tech company. Uh, And I mean hard-on in the aggressive way, not in the sexual way. Uh, And (laughs) and guess what? Peter, the CEO of Collective, was the chairman of Kubian and – a board member moved over from Kubian, and one of the senior employees moved over from Kubian. So Collective is a little bit of a Kubian reboot, even though it's a totally separate company with different ownership structure. There's not much story here. This is like a story that went nowhere, but I have my eye on you. That's really the that's really the lesson here. I've got my eye on you. And uh, I think the one thing that's interesting, and again, you know, Joe's, Joe's on the board personally. You know, there's no, no involvement from Aperium. It might be, I think, the only company to de-spack over the course of the past couple of years. Uh, like, yeah. I don't think there's been one since, yeah, since that frenzy of, of 21. It was a pretty small market cap. It's like, like a $15 million market cap. And, and that's less than 1x of their revenue. Um, so it's a pretty small company. I think the idea here, I have to speculate, the idea here is to do more acquisitions and to grow the company inorganically to create something new based with public currency. I think that was Kubian's strategy also. It just didn't work. Sounds reasonable and good people around the table. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Josie. All right, let's get into uh, to some funding news. So, um, so this one will be fun. Uh, yesterday, there was an announcement from uh, TB Scientific, so a uh, portfolio company of Aperiums. We've been in the business since uh, since basically day one. They announced a a pre Series B, you know, basically net nine million dollars, nine point four million, and it was interesting because it was uh, led by uh, S4S Ventures. Sir Martin's uh, venture vehicle, not you know part part of S4 Capital. It's a it's a separate entity, and joined by a couple of other strategics, um, BDMI, so the uh, venture fund of Bertelsmann, and Progress Ventures, which is connected to Progress Partners, the the, the investment bank. So 
notable in that uh, this is a, a company that uh, is you know doing quite well, has a bunch of you know kind of interesting strategic investors around the table. Previous rounds had Hearst Ventures and uh, NBCU, and so Martin's getting involved. So uh, obviously, as an investor, I was I was excited to to see it, and um, we're we're a big believer in in what they're doing. And then this morning, there was another announcement by a different company. You want to take that one? Yeah, uh, the company I'm on the board of called Vibe out of Paris. They raised $22.5 million in a very sizable A round that uh, that was, I think, probably is going to raise some people's eyebrows. It was led by Singular, which is a European venture capital firm. And it's pretty exciting because they're going after SMBs. Uh, they're, they're a little bit lower in the market than TV Scientific. TV Scientific is kind of more mid-market and large advertiser. And Vibe is really small advertiser. You could buy television ads for as little as $50 a month. And when I thought I, it was $500. It's, it's only $50. <laughs> yeah, it's $50 to start. Oh, man. Let me get my credit card. <laughs> you should. You should buy some ads. So when I, I've been asked about the press before this announcement, and um, and I and I kind of told the story I'll tell here, which includes TV Scientific, which is that the television business obviously has been disrupted by streaming. Consumers are moving. There's new controls over distribution. And as part of that, the advertising buying structure is being disrupted as well. And in the old television world, it was entirely your local cable companies that were able to sell TV ads to smaller regional businesses. And that in particular is ripe for disruption. Uh, it's not very efficient. The prices are too high. The entry level is too high. It's always the same, you know, uh, car dealerships and other advertisers that are mainstays of uh, local spot cable. And it's very exciting that the liquidity allows technology to come to bear. And I think companies like TV Scientific, Vibe, companies like Mountain are really innovating here. And it's very exciting. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, they, they both announced this week. Um, they both bring net new advertisers to, to streaming. You know, thus the involvement on on some of the you know strategic front uh, on on TV scientific, and I think that uh, streaming by the end of this year, from a, a, a consumer experience, hopefully is going to be better. It's going to be more relevant ads. It's going to be somewhat democratized in terms of who can buy ads because the ad creation is you know going to be I think quite uh, simplified um, by you know some of the some of the AI tools. So I couldn't be more excited about what's going on in in, in CTV right now. It's so exciting. That said, you know, I had a I had lunch yesterday with a, a person who shall be remain nameless. Um, this is a uh, an ad tech OG that uh, took some time away from ad tech and is now coming back in. And um, this individual made an interesting observation. He's like, "All you people talk about is CTV and how exciting it is, and all the companies that are raising." And when I watch, you know, streaming, it's like broken ads. It's you know overly frequent, uh, you know non you know capped placements. It's like stuff that's not relevant to me. So you can look at it from two standpoints. It's like number one, hey, like there's a ways to go. But then number two, hey, there's a ways to go. And this thing is going to be like really really interesting once the supply side, the demand side, you know, all the players really really start to start to scale. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, what, what other uh, funding or maybe not funding, but but new new company launch. Our friends uh, in Europe, the First Party Capital crew, launched a business called Bedrock, which sounds a bit like beeswax, huh? Yeah. You know, uh, Karen O'Kane, a good friend of the pod and friend personally, uh, he put out a pretty exciting announcement today. He quoted me and said I was like one of the deans of AdTech, so I have to thank him back. Your canonical blog post. My canonical blog post. Was referenced. It was. Um, effectively, he's trying to follow in the footsteps of IP on Web, AppNexus, and beeswax with a very customizable DSP stack. 
feels very European-centric. Um, I don't know if they're planning on expanding the U.S. He announced that Shane Chevlin is going to be the CEO, um, who's a very well-respected guy in, in the U.K. who used to run IP on web sales. And uh, the pitch is customizable media trading. Um, which is kind of the way I think a lot of people in the UK market think about, you know, getting an edge on their trading capabilities. I think the backstory here, I'm not confirmed on this, but I'm pretty sure the backstory here is that there used to be a company, a small DSP called Avoset, based in London, uh, that was run by my friend Ezra, former AppNexus person. And Avoset was very innovative, but small and known for a lot of really cool tech. And they merged with a company called Lumen, which is an eye-tracking company, probably a year ago. And so Lumen is doing very well. It's very interesting tech, if you ever have a chance to look into it, um, about engagement using eye-tracking tech. And the leftover Avocet is being revived as Bedrock. That's my thinking. I can't confirm that. I haven't talked to Karen about it, but I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. Yeah, I think that makes sense um, because First Party and Karen, they were involved in, you know, I think all of those businesses and the and the transaction. So I'd, I'd, I'd imagine so. I think... Um, uh, that's actually an interesting idea, you know, giving a, you know, existing platform new life and trying to, you know, create a more modern business on top of it. I think that's, that's super cool. And the idea of, you know, em- empowering trading, um, building ad networks on, on top of it, um, feels like a, a neat idea in this age of curation and PMPs and, you know, building ad networks, building first party data networks. So, so super neat. Congrats to those guys. Yeah, I think um, in my experience at Beeswax, uh, there is a lot of demand, especially in Europe, for customization and control. It's kind of in the DNA of the ad tech ecosystem there. Beeswax, we we struggled a bit with the UK and Europe because the deals were really small. The actual volume per country is smaller than the US. Um, so uh, that's that was really the barrier to Beeswax being very successful in that region. So perhaps Bedrock is taking a different approach. We'll, we'll have to see. It's worth watching. All right. So uh, we'll get into some Google news. So this one was a little bit hard to figure out. There was an announcement that uh, Google was going to give more control over uh, search ads and you know transparency into uh, where search distribution deals were happening. You know, seemingly as a result of the analytics expose in the journal and, and covered here in, in more architecture. Now, do you understand this one? Because there's been some <laughs> questions around like what level of transparency no, they're I don't actually have the details. giving. I, I saw something, you know, basically everybody was was cheering that, you know, uh, we're finally going to be getting transparency around, you know, effectively search distribution. And then, you know, I was following this this string on uh, LinkedIn from the Check My Ads folks. Um, and, you know, basically they were saying that it's only going to be for Pmax customers. So not all Google search customers, only Pmax customers. Which, frankly, were I think the audience uh, or the customer base that you know this whole thing was was about. Uh, that's interesting because I think if you're not Pmax, you already have the ability to opt out of the extended network. So I, I think the problem was that the Pmax customers couldn't opt out and weren't getting the reporting, which is the worst of all worlds. Right. Right. Okay. So you know, probably a needed change for Pmax customers. Yeah, and I thought uh, you know Adam Heimlich, as usual, is making friends on LinkedIn with some. Some pretty fiery posts about this for a lot of like, hey, why don't you apologize? Google, you knew you were wrong stuff. It's been, you know, always drama, always drama. <laughs> what did Adam have to say? His his quote, it was actually kind of nice for him. Like on, on his on his scale is pretty nice. He basically said, I love Google. I love the people who work there. But the people who dragged analytics should be ashamed of themselves and should <laughs> apologize. <laughs> 
which is <laughs> Sounds true. Like Adam, so. there was a lot of disinformation yeah, coming out of Google when Analytics reports things <laughs> for certain. And then you put this one in the in the doc. So uh, Google is being sued, I think, yet again by European publishers. Yep, Axel Springer and their friends who all use GAM are suing Google. I think the details here is that there are the same sort of allegations that have been going around from the Department of Justice about the way Google has manipulated the auction to benefit itself, things like Bernanke and Poirot. And I can I will have a future episode on this. I have too much information in my head that wants to get out. They're effectively suing on a private basis for uh, remuneration for what they perceived as lost efficiency and higher fees because of the manipulation of the auction. It's about a $2 billion lawsuit. I think the interesting thing here is that I've said this a couple of times, is that Google, in when they rolled out each of these sort of anti-competitive options in the auction, they always did control groups, and they always found that even though they were hurting competition, they were helping publishers. Things like Bernanke, where they moved money around between auctions, really is awful on a competitive side, but the publishers ended up making more money. And so I, uh, I wonder how this case is going to evolve, because it's going to be very difficult to prove that these companies who are using GAM and using AdX were actually harmed by some of the activities of Google. Got it. So you think this this one doesn't go anywhere? Unless it's on, it might be things I don't know. But from what I've seen, I haven't, yeah. you know, tend, they tend to have made more money because of Google. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Um, one Google adjacent announcement, I guess maybe, maybe two. So, you know, last week we covered the Gemini AI kerfluffle with, um, you know, the, the, the woke search results, um, you know, <laughs> the CEO put out somewhat of an apology, somewhat of a we're going to do better. And it was uh, not well received by the by the Internet. So um, continue to watch just the dumpster fire of uh, of, of what's going on there. Um, on a more positive note, yesterday on the Snowflake earnings call, Frank Slootman, the founder and CEO of Snowflake, announced his retirement. The stock actually did not respond positively to that one. I think a lot of people think, you know, Frank is 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 Snowflake. Snowflake is Frank. But his uh, replacement, uh, the new CEO, is going to be Sridhar uh, Ramaswamy. So Sridhar was the longtime uh, uh, head of Google Ads um, forever, basically, and ran a giant business and grew it over the course of probably more than a decade. And then he left and tried to start a Google competitor called Neva, you know, effectively a, pr a private uh, search engine, which... Snowflake acquired, didn't make a lot of sense. Now it makes a ton of sense because uh, Sridhar is is amazing. So shout out to to him on, on getting what is like an awesome job. Yeah, that's an awesome job. I worked with Sridhar when I was at Google. I had a couple meetings with him. He was super intelligent, very engaged. Uh, he very much did not listen to any of my advice, but you know that I'm not going to hold that against him. Uh, I was actually called in. Quick anecdote story. So it was it was maybe a couple months after the Google acquisition closed, uh, and YouTube was really new then. They were they really did not know how to monetize YouTube because YouTube acquisition was only maybe a year before the double click acquisition. And Sridhar and a bunch of folks had built a whole program around monetizing YouTube entirely on search. So it was like AdWords for YouTube. It was like promoted videos and things like that. And there's this cultural divide where the Mountain View people, good Sridhar, thought this was the best thing since sliced bread. And the DoubleClick people and anyone who knew advertising were like, what the hell are you doing? Show some video ads. Don't do search ads. Like video ads is the future. And 
effectively me and maybe, I don't know, Brad Bender, I can't remember, were flown out to Mountain View to try to shake some sense into the YouTube team or to San Bruno probably. And it was a very uncomfortable meeting because they very much did not want our opinion. Uh, and we were like, search ads, stop wasting your time on search ads. And this is going to people who built Google Search, the greatest advertising thing in the world. We were right. We were totally right. But um, it was a uh, an example of, uh, I guess, cultural osmosis not working. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, we'll close out on on two things. Uh, one fun one, and and one thing for uh, for for folks to to follow up on and read. So uh, we're not a video podcast, but I'm gonna put this in the the screen here for for you, Ari. What is that? What is this? This is my Wawa app. These are all of the <laughs> transactions that I've made on the Wawa app. Okay, we have to explain this to <laughs> what, anyone what is- who doesn't live within like 50 miles of Philadelphia. No one knows what you're talking about. Okay, so what Ari is looking at right now is an endless stream of transactions, an embarrassingly endless stream of transactions that I've made in my Wawa app. If you are not from the Northeast, what is Wawa? Wawa is the the greatest gas station, convenience (laughs) store, (laughs) restaurant in the world. Uh, It is majority owned by by actually one family. I want to say like, there's a Bloomberg article a couple of weeks ago about it. Um, you know, it's like it does tens of billions of dollars. It's super profitable. Um, it's expanding rapidly throughout the rest of the country. And what did they just announce? They announced an RMN. <laughs> so you will be able to. I have no idea. Like I'm so excited about this. I, I you Wawa is the greatest convenience store in America. I love Wawa, but there aren't any in New York. It's really just a Philadelphia, New Jersey thing. Maybe Delaware. And uh, they're great. They have great hoagies. There's actually a, a, an amazing, sustainable Wawa on the campus of Princeton University. I visited once. It was like the greatest Wawa I've ever been to. But yeah, they're re- expanding. They're expanding. So if you want to advertise your hoagies uh, or your chips with hoagies, like you now have some product listing ads you can buy. And if anybody wants to argue over whether or not Wawa is the best, and I've heard that there is, you know, fans of Sheets, fans of Seven Eleven, fans of some of these other subpar convenience store gas station sandwich places come at me on twitter we yeah. can have a real conversation I, and i will take you to wawa and prove no i would i miss wawa because i can't get one i wonder where the furthest north they come is i think it might be like princeton or mid central jersey no 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 there's there's one by me there's actually a couple by me in north jersey okay um, next time we 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 meet up i will bring you a sandwich but while we're on the subject is there such a thing as central jersey i've heard this debate that there is no central jersey there's north and south jersey and central jersey is not a real thing Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, the New Brunswick area where, where Rutgers is, Woodbridge, Menlo Park, that is absolutely central New Jersey. New Jersey is a big state. Indeed. You have to divide it into three. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Okay. All right. Final thing that I think would be awesome for people to read, or you put this in the in the chat um, and folks can can check it out. It's titled, How the Pentagon Learned to Target Ads and Find Vladimir Putin, something to that effect in Wired. This is one of those ad tech shot pieces, basically, you know, about how your phone can basically be tracked and identify uh, you based on your movements. And it's uh, written from the perspective of how government agencies uh, have presumably or allegedly been using this to track the movements of some of the uh, enemies or folks that they want to keep an eye on of America. But then on the other side, I think if you read this, you will be uncomfortable about how anybody with this kind of access could find you. 
Yep, absolutely. You have terrorists in the desert playing Candy Crush, and RTB signals go out to the missiles. Missiles fall on the terrorists. That's the uh, circle of life, circle of death as it is. But it's, it's worth reading. This is a very long article, very interesting. And I will point out, the, where do you find these show notes? You find them in the weekly newsletter. Subscribe at news.marchitecture.tv. You know it. And Ari writes original content now every single week, which um, is some of the best stuff you will you will read on the internet. I think that's it. Awesome show. Yeah. Get home safe. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you in, uh, in New York soon. Hopefully, we'll see you in Possible, at Possible, in Miami in a couple months. In a couple months. So thanks, everybody. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.